Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. Thank you guys for joining me today. Today we're going to go over what defines new, noteworthy, or novel, what is a breakthrough device designation, what is the difference with the newer Safer Technologies Program, or STEP, and then we're going to talk about the de novo pathway, how both of those programs roll up into the de novo, and then we're going to talk about relevant guidance documents that govern all three of these aspects. So new, noteworthy, or novel, and it's important to understand this because it's the case for your breakthrough designation, but it's also the point of differentiation between do you qualify for a breakthrough or a STEP program. So if determining if your device is novel. So the FDA's definition of a novel technology is when you're, when you're considered a breakthrough technology is it has the potential to lead to clinical improvement in the diagnosis, treatment, mitigation, cure, or prevention, so kind of the standard definition of a medical device, of life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating disease or condition. Now, it's very important to focus on life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating, and we're going to get into the criteria for both of those a little bit deeper shortly. So here's just an example of the kind of fine line between being a breakthrough technology and and not being a breakthrough technology. On the right, we have got a transcatheter heart valve that's delivered transcutaneously. Option one, the method is to be delivered during open heart surgery. This is not novel. This is how these valves are delivered all the time. However, if we come up with a method, a new breakthrough technology to deliver this same type of valve, via a method that does not require open heart surgery, thus we're decreasing the risks of a procedure. This is a total novel way to do this procedure, and so this technology has the potential to provide a clinically meaningful advantage in a patient population that needs this compared to having open heart surgery. So this is just an example of different factors that, that you have to consider in if your device is novel. It's not just the, the device itself, but also the delivery technology and the overall um, spectrum of care. What does that mean for the breakthrough device pathway? Well, first, the breakthrough devices have, were designated to streamline market clearance and approval process and overall expedite that for these novel technologies. There is a two-step criterion and that this program is gaining popularity. It started in a 2015-2016 range with just a handful of devices cleared uh, a year, and it is gaining in popularity. Now there are 657 total devices that have received designations since the beginning of the program. Now bear with me here, because 657 is already not a large number, but these are just the numbers that have received the actual, okay, you can participate in this program. If you get that designation, the strategic advantages of it include that you have increased and more informal communications with FDA, 
You have got more uh, design flexible clinical trials with the endpoint, both the endpoints and the size of trials being negotiable prior to clearance and then post clearance. And then this is supposed to be a faster and easier path to market for these new and novel things that would normally get bogged down in an FDA clearance or approval process. So the focus of the whole program is to provide a high-level engagement between the FDA and device innovators with the goal of speeding development where there is no good alternative to patients. So that's another important phrase that we have to link to the, the breakthrough program is that where there is no good alternative on top of being new or novel. So again, the popularity is increasing. We are up to 657 devices designated since the start of the program. And if you look at this graph here, you can see it's kind of growing uh, fairly exponentially at, uh, towards the last year. But it's important to know that FDA confirmed the rate of acceptance that has changed from 70% in 2018 to only 40% are accepted into the program by 2020. Even though that it looks like you've got a significantly more amount, this ref reflects only about 40% of the applicants to the program. So that, that, should, that should show you how many people don't receive a de novo, a, a, a breakthrough. You can see here, orthopedics is the third highest group designated under the program with 71 designated over the life cycle. And then here, this is also important. Recent, just recently in April of this year, FDA made a list public of all of the devices that have made it all the way through the program. We don't have a list of all the ones that have been designated that 657, but of that 657, only 42, 44 have been authorized and only 42 of those were uh, medical devices and two were CBER. So this just kind of puts the popularity in program in perspective of how many people actually graduate, if you will, from that breakthrough designation process. So, and this is, this is since the start of the program, uh, back to th 2015, I believe. So some potential questions is, am I going to need to show that my device is more effective than other products on the market? And the answer is no, unless you're making a claim that it's more effective. But the other reason why you don't have to prove it's more effective is you're already saying this is a novel technology, a novel delivery method. There really shouldn't be much that you can compare it to that, that is already in the market. Does this mean that I can uh, pitch to the FDA that this is going to be, uh, should be an easier, simpler, or less expensive clini clinical trial? Possibly, but, and this is where you still have to get into the terms of safe and effective, but not necessarily more effective. You just have to be effective because again, there's really no alternative out there for the patients. So the effectiveness then becomes a benefit risk discussion. And the FDA even said in their guidance document that they may accept a greater extent of uncertainty in the benefit risk profile compared to the clinical trial decisions. So that's important to, to keep in mind 
is that argument of effectiveness and your trial size has to be wrapped around an extent of uncertainty discussion and you have to roll all that into your benefit risk discussion. So this is what that could look like in theory. So we take our novel cardiovascular product we discussed. Normally, we might have to have quite a large clinical trial. We would have to have a lot of discussions in advance of clearance or approval with the FDA before we could say this was FDA approved. We would lar largely have to have those trials with significant endpoints, maybe at, at a longer period of time or a different level of success. So if you get a breakthrough, this is the potential discussion that you can have with FDA. You could say, hey, FDA, can we have a smaller upfront clinical trial with a negotiated endpoint if we agree to some terms with an extended endpoint and increased population in a post-approval study? I think when we did the research for this presentation, we even saw where somebody negotiated like literally three people into their trial and to their first endpoint to, to bring their product to market. But it was a very significant post-market study. Is your device eligible? The first criteria is that the device provides for more effective treatment or diagnosis of a life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating human disease or condition. And then pay close at attention to these criteria and note them for a discussion that we're gonna have in a few minutes here. The device also meets at least one of it represents a breakthrough technology, which we've just discussed the definition of. There are no approved or cleared alternatives it offers significant advantages over existing approved or cleared alternatives, or the device availability is in the best interest of the patient. And so you have to go through each one of these criteria and make a case to the best. You only have to pick one, but to the extent you can, you should, you should make the, the arguments that you can for as many that apply to your device. But both of them have to be met. You have a potential to remove your device from designation if your device no longer uh, is eligible based on the information available. Now, this could even include that some other technology comes to market, even something else that has a breakthrough designation that you don't know about it that makes it to that list of 44 can possibly invalidate your breakthrough. Something else that can invalidate your breakthrough is that you fail to meet those endpoints or the trial size considerations that FDA has put, uh, has negotiated with you. And if, if you get your designated, designation revoked, that kind of takes away your, uh, fast pass or your, your, uh, go to get out of jail free and you kind of end up on the normal pathway spectrum. So this is an interesting case study of a timeline where they actually submitted a PMA. Then the 21st Century uh, Cure, the Cures Act, the Cures 2.0 came out that rolled up a link to Medicare reimbursement with a breakthrough. The company decides to put on hold or withdraw their PMA and apply for a breakthrough designation. And then they end up shortly thereafter with an approved PMA with a breakthrough designation in August of 2021. And we just looked this up 
and this Cures Act was updated in June of 2021, and then they applied in July for their breakthrough. They got it, and they put their PMA in, which means that the FDA must have agreed to put their PMA on hold. Now, I'm just speculating because there's not a whole lot of information available over this particular case, but you can kind of see how this company leveraged the breakthrough to uh, expedite their PMA. Bear with me on the designation and then keep it, keep all, everything that we're going to go through in mind for when we discuss the step in the shortly. So you're going to apply for entry into, uh, to the breakthrough. The breakthrough is what is considered a Q sub process with the FDA. Then your application must describe in detail. And so this is where you can't be an early concept development. You can't still be figuring out what is your intended use going to be? What is your patient population going to be? You have to describe in detail your regulatory history, what type of marketing submission you think this is going to be to the FDA. Is it going to be a de novo? Is it going to be a PMA? And then how? You, then you have to go into detail about how it uh, meets the criteria for the breakthrough device. So again, um, I see a lot of companies, especially when they're in normal pre-submission discussions with the FDA, ask questions very early on where they really haven't articulated these things in a large amount of detail about their device, but you're likely not going to get a breakthrough unless you understand them. So now we're going to split um, and we have to prove that first criteria, which is a standalone that the device provides for more effective treatment of a diagnosing, diagnosis of the life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating, which means you may need clinical literature to support the conclusion or the statement that you have got something that's life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating. So, and then you move on after you make your case for your first criteria, you move into your case for your second criteria in that it represents the breakthrough technology, no approved alternatives, offers significant advantages over existing approved alternatives, or the availability is in the best interest of the patient. After you put your submission in, FDA is supposed to request additional information within 30 days. You, they, you turn in your submission and then with a total clock days of 60 days, they're supposed to give you a decision letter about do they agree if you qualify for the breakthrough designation process or not. If it is granted, you proceed with your de novo or your PMA. Now, again, we've used the term novel. We've life-sustaining, life-threatening, unique. We've used all those terms extensively when we're talking about these criteria. So in generally, we're not talking about something that qualifies for a 510K. And then if it's declined, you proceed with your normal submission strategy, but you may have to adapt that strategy based off of FDA feedback. And then if you, you, you can start your submission process with a breakthrough, there's a lot of different programs available to participate in the QSUB process after you get your, um, your breakthrough, and we'll talk about those in a minute. But let me give you an example of one uh, that was declined that I work on, worked on. And th this is pretty interesting because we ended up going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole with the FDA, depending on who the reviewer was. I was working on a light therapy technology to um, prevent preterm labor. 
in women who had a variety of different medical conditions. It, it was just, but the only indication was to prevent preterm labor, get them to X number of weeks, and there's nothing out there with this particular indication. There's nothing really out there to treat preterm birth. So we put in a, we put in a, a breakthrough. The reviewer came back and said, A, we're not sure that premature birth is a medical condition despite all of the known birth defects and ma maternal health defects that come with preterm term birth. And then B, we're not even, because we're not convinced this is a medical condition, we're not even convinced it's a medical device. So if you could please put in a 513G, which is a, basically a request for information where the FDA, you tell the FDA what you think your device is, and they tell you if they agree or what classification it is. So we do a 513G. We are taking their advice, trying to say, do you say that, do you, can you give me a letter that says this is not a medical device so we can go into the commercial market? And they said, we don't know who told you it was not a medical device, but not only do we think it's a medical device, we think it's a de novo, but we're very interesting in it and we want to have a meeting with you right away. So ended up all over the map. So don't think that the breakthrough is a predictive process. Again, there's only been 657 since 2015. So you're not talking about like this is something that the FDA is well-schooled in or practiced or, or has done uh, regularly. Should you get one? One of the benefits is you get to specify to FDA what advantage do you want. Do you want a sprint discussion, which means that you must reach a mutual agreement on a specific set of top topics with FDA within 45 days? So this is a little bit less formal of a conversation, and you literally have to go back and forth fairly rapidly in the communication. Do you want to agree on a data development plan, which outlines data collection expectations for your entire product lifecycle, so this is kind of what we were talking about. What can you do, uh, negotiate kind of pre-market versus post-market? Do you want a clinical protocol agreement, which is binding, for, that's fun, for both FDA and the sponsor, so no take-backsies, which is a, a significant advantage. And then there's, there's kind of everything else. There's, there's a variety of other benefits, including if you were to do pre-submissions, these are um, supposed to be tracked differently. They're supposed to be more informal. They're supposed to be called interaction for designated breakthrough device uh, interaction. And so they're supposed to move through the process more quickly than a pre-sub. However, I, I have a client that had a breakthrough designation right before the pandemic. Their communications were moving via email back and forth through the FDA very efficiently the pandemic hit and they, they quit talking to them for two years. And they had been trying to use all their informal pathways and they finally just put in a formal Q-sub through the good pre-submission, through the good old-fashioned mail-it-in e-copy, trying to force the FDA's hand to talk to them again. So if you do take advantage of the pre-sub after you get the breakthrough designation, make sure that you're using this effectively as a tool. This is an opportunity to discuss very specific questions with FDA. Do not ask open in questions. This is opportunity for you to say, FDA, we think this or that, and do you concur? And if not, why not? What do you think? 
this, the pre-submission is almost asking the FDA to be part of the problem-solving team for your development process. It's a huge opportunity to get FDA's current thinking and understand where that might be different than your own, particularly because people with new and novel technologies are in love with their own science and they think everybody else will be too, um, particularly the FDA and, and they are not and will not be. You need to focus on three to four substantial topics that are going to make a critical difference to your submission. Don't throw in the critical sink, the kitchen sink, and ask, you know, everything under the sun. So again, the art of writing uh, uh, good questions is you need to focus your efforts on uh, the issues most relevant to moving your project forward. Uh, they need to be clear and objective. Uh, you need to give sufficient background and context around your, your question in appendixes to the, the pre-submission. And then you need, your question should guide FDA to the, your desired outcome, as should all of your attachments and provided information. Again, your other advantages is that you should get regular status updates if the program is working correctly. This can be via email, teleconference, once upon a time, a face-to-face -face meeting. I still don't think that they're back to those. It was supposed to be for timely interaction and a potential shorter time to market and commercialization. So if we take this example of a device and we put it through our checklist, this is... The intended use is for basically cartilage lesions in arthritic and non-arthritic joints derived from purified inorganic coral exoskeleton. There, the indications for use, it's indicated for the treatment of knee joint surface lesions, which is a, right now it's a current surgical standard of care that involves microfracture and debridement. And then we also have to include any regulatory history. So if as we are progressing through our, device, our design and development, we have had any IDE discussions or pre-submissions, you have to include those, any communications with you, you've had with the FDA at all in your discussion with the breakthrough. So we can see right here for our indication, you know, the knee joint condition is irre irre irreversibly debilitating. It has the potential to lead to a clinical improvement in treatment uh, of that irreversibly uh, de debilitating condition. And there are no other approved alternatives in terms of a device treatment method outside of that surgical treatment method to debride. And then it leads to a, a superiority in effectiveness but we're really not able to confirm that the device availability is in the best interest of the patients, you know, except for, you know, you would think if you could check all these three logically, you know, you would be in the best interest of the patients as well. Um, this last one, I think, is, is really for where you have a patient advocacy group that is behind your technology or your treatment method and can, can support or stand behind or testify as to why your product is, is better, better for them. So you can see we've gone through and we've had a discussion about every one of the criteria that apply, not just picked one of that second set of four. It's also important to know that you can look at now, you, because we'll, we have that list of 44 that received the breakthrough, you can look them up 
You can see uh, how long it took them to get their approval letters. You can look at the approval order, the summary of safety and effectiveness, the labeling, the post-approval study. So you'll be able to see the what they were required to do pre-approval and what they were required post-approval, which might help set some context around the discussion that or, or what you might want to pose to FDA in your own negotiations around your, your clinical or your safety and effectiveness discussions. What if I receive my designation? Can I still make changes? Well, technically you can, but your designation may no longer apply to your device and you need to have a very specific discussion about what those changes are and how your breakthrough still applies. I have a client that got a breakthrough and then they immediately went to uh, FDA with a change of indication so they could do a 510K. It's like, great, what was the point of the breakthrough? So what happens, you know, if, if you're wrong, if the FDA rejects your uh, breakthrough designation after you've uh, either when you first put it in or after you've submitted it, you either go through your standard filing path and you move on life as usual as if you didn't have it, or maybe you, you could be eligible for the safer technologies or the STEP program. So the STEP is a little like a fraternal twin for the FDA. It's targeted at products with a significant safety benefits in non-life-threatening or reasonably reversible conditions with, that are less serious than those eligible for the agency's breakthrough device program. So now, because we have a second program, that, that argument for what defines life-threatening or irreversible become, has a lot more weight because I've seen them say, in our opinion, we have other alternatives that, and, and so therefore it makes this a less serious um, case than, than for a breakthrough. And in that case, FDA intends to provide, they still intend to provide the interactive and timely communication, so you still get those benefits, and it's still a two-step process, just like the breakthrough uh, designation process. So again, it's similar, but different. So let's go through the criteria again. Again, we've talked about the different uh, differences in the type of condition we treat. We're going for less serious of nature. Now look at, at how our second des designation criteria, how the verbiage starts changing. So the second criteria should be reasonably expected to significantly improve the benefit-risk profile of a treatment through substantial safety innovations, so innovations, but we're not like to that full-out novel, maybe, that provide for at least one of the following. A reduction in, I'll finish reading these in a second, but they start with a reduction in, a reduction in, a reduction in, and an improvement in. So we're talking about very different arguments and very different perspectives and what qualifies you for a step. So a reduction in the occurrence of a known serious adverse event, a reduction in the occurrence of known device failure, a reduction in the occurrence of known use related hazard or use error, or an improvement in the safety of another device or intervention. So the criteria, while they're similar, 
you're making a totally different nature of a case to the FDA. But again, both criteria must be met. So if we look at these kind of fraternal twins, you know, look like they're two peas in the pod, just in summary. You've got the breakthrough, which is for the more effective treat treatment or diagnosis of those life-threatening, irreversibly de debilitating. And we go from more effective treatment to reasonably expected to significantly improve the safety of less serious conditions or events. I love that target an underlying disease or condition associated with morbidities and mortalities less serious. So the whole, you have to have the argument in both for these morbidities and more mortalities in both, but one, you're trying to prove the debilitating nature and one, you're trying to prove the least serious. Both are prior to uh, your pre-marketing submission that you should apply in general. The high-level process is the same. You're going to go through that QSUB program. You are going to be get entrance to the program, and then you're going to go through whatever designated um, um, review that, that is el you're eligible for. Breakthrough, your marketing submission is likely going to be a PMA, maybe a de novo. A step, it's likely going to be a de novo. There are cases where it could be a 510K. So anyways, just know that there is a case for a 510K underneath the STEP program. The last difference is really in the program features is that you, for the breakthrough, you're going to, um, you have an eligibility to negotiate the, the clinical protocol agreement and the breakthrough as opposed to the STEP. So those are kind of the, the two preliminary methods you can take to expedite your potentially de novo pathway. So in general, de novo is the pathway for novel medical devices intended to advance the state of safe, effective, and more innovative treatments. And you, it basically starts with you're going to have kind of this low to medium risk device. There is going to be no real substantial equivalence determination, and we'll go through what that, that determination looks like in a second. As a result, because you have no substantial equivalence determination, you're not going to really have any predicate devices, or if you do, you're going to have differences that raise new questions of safety or efficacy. De novos are not going to have a classification regulation because by nature, the end of a de novo process ends in a new product regulation and product code. All of that rolls up into a risk benefit or benefit risk analysis and it's going to uh, end the process in FDA determining that your device meets class one or class two device requirements and again issuing that new regulation for your product. Is your device low to medium risk? No, if it's high risk, the P, just go to a P, do a pre-sub and agree that a pre, P, pre, PMA is the right place for you to start. Can substantial equivalence be determined? If yes, even if it's the case where you might could use a predicate and a reference for a single feature to compare your device to, you can you have an argument for a 510K. If there are no available uh, classifications or predicates, then a de novo uh, is appropriate. So the term substantial equivalence, and this is important because in a de novo classification re request, you have to do your own research and show FDA basically there's not something that you already fall into uh, in terms of classification. So in substantial equivalence, you compare your intended use to other 
other devices, intended use, device features, performance testing, and the intent of a predicate is to compare uh, your device to the other legally marketed device and prove that your device is as safe and effective. Now, you can see we can easily make a case that, you know, the green apples are same, similar. We might can do a 510K on this if we can prove changing the color of the skin doesn't raise a new question of safety and efficacy. Or we might have something total out here in left field where it looks pretty obvious that these are different. So if we were to take these devices and walk them down the substantial equivalence decision tree that the FDA uses when they review every 510K, it, they, we will go down this whole uh, question series flowchart. It says, identify a device and its proposed predicate. Is the predicate are legally marketed? That, that's important because you can't assume that your competitors have followed the correct pathway all the time. If not, then it's going to be non-substantially equivalent. Does it have the same intended use? If not, it's usually considered non-substantially equivalent. Is it the same technological characteristics? If not, it is usually considered not substantially equivalent. If it has the same effectiveness in uh, question, safety and effectiveness, if not, then it's not substantially equivalent. And then usually these things mean that you can either do a 510K or you need to do a de novo. If at any point in this flowchart while you're doing your analysis, you think you could have an argument for a potential 510K, you need to do a pre-submission and have that discussion with FDA and decide if they will accept a 510K or if the de novo is appropriate or, or if they think that you could do a small clinical trial to address those new questions of safety and efficacy or that difference in intended use or that difference in technological characteristics. So if you use the pre-sub correctly, all of these become discussion points rather than um, endpoints that pre-exist the fact your your interaction with the agency. So a de novo, you know, you get the advantage of having the early interaction with the FDA. They say if you know you're going to have to submit a de novo, they really encourage you to do a pre-sub. So remember all that coaching we went to, through on how to write your questions for a pre-sub successfully. And then the FDA will, if you do the de novo, they will tell you if your device is suitable. They will give you advice on the supporting documentation uh, needed in subsequent 510Ks because you do a de novo and then thereafter you can do a 510K for that same type of technology or indication. FDA view on what type of classification they feel like it will end up, one or two, and feedback on any evidence that may be needed to support your petition. So in the de novo database, um, when a de novo is granted, FDA again creates a new classification regulation and a new product code. And so you'll have both in the 21 CFR 8.8 whatevers, you're going to have um, a new actual regulation. But in the product code database, you'll have a new three-letter product code that defines that product as well. And if you are following a competitor that has a de novo, it is fascinating to read their reclassification order that is a document that's generated by the FDA. This is where they have drafted the logic behind 
what, how they, they think that this product should be regulated, what the new 21 CFR is going to be, what special controls are going to be required, and then you're going to also see your decision summary, which is similar to your 510K summary, but there's a lot more data here. You're going to have a greater detail about their performance uh, data that they turned in, their clinical data, their labeling, whereas a 510K summary is on the order of two to five pages. A decision summary for a de novo is on the order of 20 to 30. A lot of information there. One area where I see people misunderstand or misuse de novo, they think that a de novo is going to give them some sort of uh, market restriction to their competitors and that, that they'll have some sort of edge or advantage. Well, de novo is not a patent. It, anybody else can bring the same technology to market through the same path uh, or in this case through a 510K. So it will actually be easier to bring um, a product to market underneath the 510K after you've already gone the hard road, the hard long road of the de novo. Where I see companies misunderstand the power of the de novo is because it results in a classification order and a new regulation, you have the opportunity to tell the FDA exactly what special controls need to be in place for your product. This could be guidance documents, it could be performance requirements, it could be labeling. There are a whole host of things that you could tell hey, FDA, when somebody else does a 510K, they really need to meet this really high bar of performance. I have seen some new, newer regulations that you could tell the people who wrote the new de novo really knew what they were doing. Like the regulation is about this long. It has specific performance and acceptance criteria. Like it must be between this wavelength and that wavelength and it must have this voltage clearing. I mean, very, very particular. And so it's going to be very hard for a competitor to either replicate a design that can, can meet those performance specifications or, you know, at the very least, they're going to have to spend as much time and money in testing as you did to bring your, de your device to market. So be aware uh, of those differences. So here's an example, a product that was cleared via de novo in 2017. It resulted in a uh, class two special controls shortly thereafter. And it took two years between the time the de novo was cleared and the new regulation was drafted to get the first 510Ks come through. And you can see between 2019 and early 2021, we had four competitive devices come to market. Um, after that, that time period. And so whatever this company decided in their class, came out in their classification order and that was set for special controls here, the, all of these guys had to meet that minimum criteria. Another strategic advantage of a de novo that, that you need to consider is say you have a basic device feature set. And this is, you know, unquestionably, you're starting on a 510K technology platform. And you have got a second feature indication and a third sec feature indication that all together will make this a de novo. You need to consider, is it going to be more time and money efficient for you to start with that base, maybe do a special 510K if you can for the subsequent features, 
and then take that final leap to the de novo. Because if it does, your path to market could look more like this. You do the 510K, you get your market clearance, you start making some money, maybe not your big money, maybe not what you sold your investors on, you know, sooner rather than later. Your, your submission cost here for a small business is only about $3,000. You do your special 510K, it's another $3,000. And you, again, can continue to market this for your expanded feature set or indication. Then you can take this last leap to de novo, and then your uh, fee is about $28,000, $30,000. So what happens at each of these inflection points is not only are you making um, you know, money because you're in some level of commercialization, but by the time you get to de novo, if all you're doing here is changing an indication, you don't necessarily have to redo your maybe electrical safety testing or your biocompatibility testing. You might, you might, depending on what that indication is, but there, there is a way of, of possibly putting blinders on the FDA. Hey, FDA, we just got these things cleared. And now all we're doing is X, therefore we don't necessarily have to go back and revisit those things in the same level of technical scrutiny because you've already recently okayed them. Let, instead, let's focus on whatever the new part of the technology is and whatever the new part of the indications is that's raising a new question of safety and efficacy. So give you like a little bit of a comparison of the difference in 510Ks, de novos, and PMAs is, you know, obviously the size, a, a lightweight 510K is between 500 and 1,000 pages. These are really like creeping up a little bit more towards the 2,000 page plus mark these days, um, especially for anything with software. The de novo, you know, really you're looking at probably, you know, five to 10,000 pages of, of data for a complex product. PMAs, these are, this is like 30 plus of those big old three ring binders worth of data and uh, paperwork. These guys, people used to pack up in their cars and drive to the FDA back in the day when you had to print them because it was so expensive to ship them. The FDA's review time is typically around 90 days. That's their clock time. The actual turnaround time is 100 to 150 days. Their clock time for de novos is supposed to be 180 days. The last published data I saw before COVID was 210 days. PMAs, the clock time is supposed to be 180 days. These are really closer to 300 plus. This is, these are really taking pretty close to a year. FDA just uh, changed it to where they can request a pre-approval -pre inspection for de novos if they have reason to. Um, and again, the fees are very different. You can you you have to use different terminology. So you can say market cleared. You could say market cleared for de novo. If it's the first if it's the first one out for you and you're not doing a subsequent 510k, you can do maybe even 510K granted in your original, uh, I mean, not 510K granted, um, de novo granted in your uh, original press releases and marketing. But you have the only way you can use pre-market approval, that term approval, is if you've done through, uh, gone through the actual PMA process. You can't say it's 510K approved or de novo approved. This is how the de novo flows through the FDA. They get the request. And then they say, okay, then that this starts the sequence. The existing application is verified. 
that again that they have no submission under review for the same device. Now this is going to be tricky because you have no idea what the FDA is looking at and for what. I've had one client, fortunately they did a pre-submission and found this out, the FDA, and they were like, does FDA agree we're going to be de novo? And they're like, wait a minute, if you wait six weeks, you won't be a de novo anymore. So, so that, that one's a little tricky, but so this is why doing that, um, the FDA will do their internal and external um, review for these things. Is all, is, is it complete? Obviously. They're going to do a classification review, so not just an existing product review, but they're going to look at their code of federal regulations and say, do we have anything that this could reasonably fall under? Because again, it ends in uh, actual classification and designation. Then they're going to start a substantive, substantive review. So if they go back and forth with you and you resolve the, the deficiencies, you know, you could go uh, right to two potential outcomes. You could be granted or declined, or you can get put on hold with additional information requests and, and kind of go back and forth in this interactive review with the agency. Sorry. This, and these timelines, they're supposed to, this whole process is again supposed to take, uh, sorry, uh, 150 days. So this is a very interesting example of a breakthrough designation and a timeline. So this is the, the PONS device. It's, it's by Helios Medical Technologies. It's for the treatment of gait deficiencies for multiple sclerosis. They received breakthrough designation in May of 2020, and they were authorized to market through the de novo pathway in March of 2021. So we just talked about that the normal pathway for de novos takes 210 days. So this means that these guys likely had already had their performance testing underway. They likely had their clinical trials underway. Perhaps they had already done pre-subs before they got their breakthrough designation. But once they got their break, uh, breakthrough, it, it, it went like wildfire. And so, Ty, we looked this up just a minute ago. So May 2020, they got the designation and they turned it in August. So they turned it, so they, they, it went from August of 2020 to go in for actual de novo review to being fully granted in March of 2021. That's it's just, it's amazing to me. So you're authorized, but what next? Well, don't f forget about all those things that you might have negotiated for post-market. And just because you've got a breakthrough doesn't mean that you're going to end up being uh, the greatest thing for, for sliced bread because several of the authorized devices actually got bad PR after they came to market because two authorized devices with breakthrough designations, a clot retrieval device and an insulin pump have been recalled for failures that could lead to serious injury or death. And so, you know, don't get so excited that that you think you've gotten kind of a free pass to market and to have these things happen in a post-market scenario is is much more i think significant and more impactful for your commercialization than for it to be something that you can troubleshoot during a, a pre-market clinical trial these are just some some things to think about uh, there are a slew of guidance documents for this whole process this is just a handful of the most significant ones for what we've talked about today. 
And, you know, like anything with FDA, one of these is probably going to point you about 10 other places. I've got a couple of handy downloads on my website that we can, uh, things like we do regulatory pathway assessments all, all day long um, to, to walk people through this process and what their options are. Um, and so we'll, we'll be happy to help.